And now, the Dave Kinchin Show. Continuing our coverage of the war in Ukraine, we just got off the phone with a member of parliament in Ukraine, Inna Sufzin, who's been working around the clock, talking to media around the world, trying to get out the message of what they need. She says a no-fly zone. You've heard that before from many folks uh, covering this overseas Uh, talking about the need for the West to get more involved in this, the rising humanitarian crisis, 2 million Ukrainians who have fled the country at this point, even talking about a six-year-old girl who dehydrated and died in Mariupol, which is currently under siege, remains under siege by the Russians, a key port city there. So we discuss all of this and how she's doing and how many people around her, how they're doing mentally with this tremendous uh, pressure on them, unlike anything that you and I have probably ever experienced, of course, unless someone has been in a military conflict. But we get right to that interview. Here it is. Anna Sufson, member of parliament in Ukraine. Um, how are you doing right now? I mean, what's I know it's day to day. It can be it can vary drastically, I imagine. How are you and what's been happening, say, in the last 24 hours from what you've seen in Ukraine? Well, I am uh, tired. I think that is the general feeling and constantly uh, under threat that they may try to proceed further into the city of Kiev and into other cities. Uh, So I think everyone right now is just so tired and exhausted and and, uh, we all keep on being extremely afraid for our loved ones. And then I've been separated from all of my loved ones since day one of the war because my son was relocated to the western Ukraine by his dad. Uh, my my boyfriend uh, uh, rejoined the army. My my dad uh, took my mom to the western Ukraine and then got back uh, to to Kiev region to to join the territorial defense. Uh, now he's not in there now because he's now he's uh, helping people get evacuated. But it's like it's like that. I haven't seen uh, a single of the most important people in my life for two weeks. Uh, that is extremely. Uh, said, and I don't know when I will be able to see them. That is probably on the personal level, that is the biggest, uh, you know, the strongest feeling I have. But then, of course, I do understand that I'm actually the lucky one because all my loved ones are alive and uh, they are, you know, they have food and the water and uh, electricity. And in the area where my dad was, they didn't have electricity for three days. But, uh, but um, other than that, I'm actually lucky because there are so many people who lost their loved ones or don't know where their loved ones are, or people in Mariupol who are now a city basically under siege from Russia. And I'm just reading reports from there. And and there was one report that was particularly painful to read about a six-year-old girl who died of dehydration after hiding in bunkers for more than a week. And I was just trying to imagine that there was a mother next to her and she was sitting there, unable to get water for her daughter, and just sitting there and looking how the daughter is slowly dying. That is, I, I can't imagine this level of pain. I can't, uh, I can't. But the, the reading reports about children's death is particularly painful to me, uh, I think to any parent would be. So, so given that, I do realize that no matter how difficult my situation is for me, it is so, so much worse for so, so many people in Ukraine. And that is just so painful. Yeah, so incredibly painful. Um, and, you know, my heart goes out to everyone um, who's lost someone and, and certainly to everyone, uh, including yourself, just in, in, in this constant fear. I'm wondering, um, with Parliament, um, is there movement uh, on um, 
you know, latest movement on humanitarian aid and things like that. I, I imagine there's coordination with with outside resources. What can you tell me about about that from the uh, parliamentary level? Uh, so the parliament, of course, is not functioning as a legislative body right now. We did have two sessions of the parliament. The first one was basically three hours after the war started, uh, 7.40 in the morning, uh, after the bombs exploded at 4.30. Uh, we did declare the, the war uh, status, and that was uh, that was it. And then we had another session uh, to pass some legislation related to war. Uh, but uh, despite the fact that we are not functioning as a legislative body, we are still functioning in our roles as representatives of the people. And, and members of parliament did find different ways of being useful in, in different capacities. Like myself, I'm doing mostly this, talking to the world, explaining what is happening here and, and explaining what Ukrainian needs and demands are. Uh, and there is a group of MPs from different political parties, actually, because I'm representing an opposition political party. I'm not in the government, but right now we, there is a coordination. Like this is the group of people working internationally. We have a separate chat from people from, from all political parties, and we're just coordinating our messaging and our you know knowledge and, and so on and so forth. And there are uh, many MPs actually doing exactly what you asked about, uh, which is humanitarian aid and relief, uh, particularly uh, those members of parliament who are representing certain constituents because in Ukraine, the parliament is, is elected different than in the US. We do have half of MPs who are elected on the party list, including myself, but then half of uh, MPs are elected through their constituencies. So particularly those who were elected in constituencies, they are back in their constituencies and they're trying to coordinate. So like MPs from Western Ukraine, which has not been hit, uh, at least not ma majorly hit, they gather some humanitarian aid and then they, they get in touch with the MPs who are located in like Kharkiv region or somewhere else, which has been particularly uh, hit by the war and they, they try to coordinate this. Uh, and then some MPs are uh, back uh, at war like my best friend in the parliament, uh, Roman Kostenko. I actually am sitting next to him in the parliament and we are, we are really good friends. Uh, and he's back at war. He's uh, now fighting in the south. Uh, he was with special forces before. So just like with my boyfriend, I knew they would both just have to go back to the, uh, to the army. Uh, but, but he's there now. We're just checking with him. Like, are you alive? Are you alive? And, um, and he's doing a great job there, actually. He's, uh, uh, I think, uh, one of the major factors why uh, they managed to stop uh, the Russian moving further into the south is because they have got really strong team down there in the south. So Russians cannot really proceed any further. So, so MPs are working in different capacities right now. But it's um, it's still working as as representatives of the people. It's just uh, the needs of what needs to be done for the people are completely different than they were just two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I can only imagine uh, how different. Um, you know, certainly all the legislative items obviously go out the window in, in, a, in a crisis like this. Um, talk more about that, just how, uh, you know, you, you talk about the great job that um, the, the Ukrainian military is doing in terms of um, holding back Russian forces. And, and um, there's been, you know, widespread discussion of, um, you know, Putin miscalculating. I mean, how, you know, the, the world has just been really deeply admiring the, the strength of, of course, the Ukrainian people, but the, the forces and, and how, um, how strong things have been going. I, it's hard to say that, but you know what I mean, um, it, how, how much success they've had in terms of holding back Russian forces in key areas. Uh, that is true indeed, because I think that um, Putin has fallen victim to his own propaganda machine. 
uh, he, you know, he was saying to the world that we have this great army and he really believed that, but his army is extremely corrupt. Apparently lots of money that were allocated to the Russian army was simply stolen. And a lot of people uh, in the army, they, they, like the Russian army is extremely disorganized. They are unable to, to fulfill their missions. Uh, they often have rather outdated equipment. And what is most important probably is that their soldiers are extremely demotivated and they don't know what they are fighting for. And this morale issue is, is crucially important in any military. And in that sense, Ukrainian army does have large superiority. So, uh, and because of that, I think Ukrainian army is actually managing this, well, to an extent relatively well. And of course, they're still coming close to, to some cities, but they are not able to proceed as of, well, at least as of yet, as we hope. So Ukrainian army did prove to be uh, much, much more resilient and much stronger. Of course, it is getting lots of support from the local population. So it's not just the Ukrainian army, it's also the people. Uh, and I think that was, again, a second misconception, misconception by Putin. He was claiming that uh, a Ukrainian uh, state is run just by some group of Nazis and the, the majority of the population is just waiting for Putin and his army to come and liberate them, that it seems like he actually believed that. And he didn't expect that Ukrainian people in all regions will actually be protesting against him coming into the cities. And we are now seeing those heartbreaking scenes of people like in the town of Kherson, which is southern Ukraine, the closest to the uh, Crimea. And uh, they have taken over the city in the one, well, first week of war. And now people are doing the most uh, Ukrainian thing possible. They're going to the streets to protest against Russians who are standing there on tanks. And that is in the Russian-speaking region that needs to be understood. Putin was claiming that he came to liberate those people. Now thousands of those people are on the streets with Ukrainian flags uh, saying in Russian to them that they want them out of our country. And I think that was that was his great misconception that he, I believe he's, uh, he's I, I frankly believe that he's gone completely crazy. And, and one of the ways he's gone crazy is because he believed his own lies. And he believed them so much that he actually based his military strategy on something that he made up that has nothing to do with reality. But then I also don't want to sound overly optimistic because despite the great uh, you know, results of the Ukrainian army, we still understand that they still have superiority in the air. And that is uh, something we cannot do much about uh, no matter how much we try, uh, unless we get the support from the air. And that is why this call for a no-fly zone is, is so crucial. It's literally a matter of survival for us uh, because uh, we can fight on the ground. I think that effect has been well established now, but if they continue bombing our cities from air, there is nothing we can do about that with them, with the forces we have. Just before we started uh, uh, this talk, I read the news that they bombarded from air a maternity hospital, a hospital where women are given birth in the city of Mariupol. We don't know the number of casualties uh, or some, or you know, any data as of yet. But this is just how cruel they are. They are unable to fight against Ukrainian army, so they're fighting against the uh, Ukrainian civilian population now. My gosh. Yeah, the reporting is just, it, it gets even more and more horrifying when you hear about the, the civilian areas that are targeted or, you know, and, and, and impacted, like you said. I mean, how, how frustrating is it that, you know, there's this international talk of a no-fly zone and the risks of, of that, you know, from, you know, the fear of escalation and engaging other countries in this. But, you know, you've said what so many others have said in Ukrainian leadership and, and just in community that this is this is the ticket to survival here. I mean, how frustrating is it to follow, you know, some of this internationally, what's going on when there's this clear call to close the sky? 
Well, it does feel um, like a betrayal because uh, particularly for, for us, for our political party, but actually for everyone else, just for us, we are probably the most pro-European, pro-Western political party in the parliament. And uh, for us specifically, that is uh, particularly painful to see that we were always arguing that Ukraine is part of the Western civilization. We are having our problems with establishing function and democracy and so on and so forth. But that is where we aspire to be. And we were so much supportive of that. And now we are seeing that, well, the West is, is not as, as welcoming to us as we expected it to be. And uh, this is painful, particularly because in 1994, Ukraine gave up its uh, nuclear weapon potential in exchange for assurances from the United States, from the United Kingdom, that in case someone is trying to attack us, we shall be protected. We were given those assurances in exchange for giving up our nuclear weapon. So just imagine how we're we are feeling right now we had that nuclear weapon we gave that up we were promised assurances of security and we are not getting them now because of some excuses like this will engage nato or something well another thing that needs to be understood right now is that putin is living in alternative reality he is making things up if he wants to attack any single nato state he will make up an excuse that is like it has nothing to do with the reality of what is actually happening he can come up with excuses just like he came up with the excuse to attack Ukraine. His attack on Ukraine was uh, with this goal of denazification of Ukraine. He attacked us because he said that we want to join NATO. But that is just nonsense because he attacked us in 2014. He annexed Crimea. He started war in Donbass when we were officially a neutral state. We were officially a neutral state that was part of our constitution at that time, and we were not aiming at joining NATO, and he attacked us. So he's making things up. If he wants to, he can say that, uh, well, uh, Swedish flag is the same colors as Ukraine's, so that means that they're actually supportive of those Nazis in Kiev, so I have to attack them. This is like, like he can come up with this excuse if he wants to. So now I don't think that, you know, caring too much that this can lead to Putin having an argument in favor of uh, attacking NATO state. If he wants to, he will attack. If he doesn't, he wouldn't attack. Like it, it has nothing to do with what NATO is doing right now, frankly speaking. And what more can the West do? I mean, there's so many things, uh, you know, uh, what, I mean, if you could talk to some of the Western leaders yourself, I mean, what, what would you say, uh, what would you say to them? Well, apart from the uh, the no-fly zone, and, and that can be, I believe, I believe you have been following this discussion about how that can be ensured, whether NATO state direct involvement yep. or just passing us the jets, we, we are okay with the jets, just give us the jets, we want those right. jets. But um, apart from that, uh, the sanctions are important. Uh, and, and there were some sanctions. Uh, we are happy with the, with the sanctions that have already been introduced, but that's not enough not nearly enough. And the rollout of sanctions is much slower than the rollout of the Russian cruelty and, and atrocities in this war. So uh, we're asking for tougher sanctions against Russia. We're asking for full trade embargo because uh, Russia needs to be made unable uh, to sustain this war economically. Uh, they need to be in a financial economic situation where they simply have no money to buy any weapon because any, like, any trade with Russia right now is basically giving them money with which they will buy weapons to kill Ukrainians. That is needs to be understood by every single person in the world. And, uh, and then there is a, another uh, level of sanctions that didn't get that much attention, but I believe we should reconsider or the world should reconsider are personal sanctions. And personal sanctions shouldn't, there have been some sanctions like uh, the arrest of the assets of Putin, but, but uh, there was a slightly, um, 
well, not enough, let's put it this way, because they arrested his accounts, but everyone knows that his uh, major wealth is not under his name and not on the accounts under his name. So what we're asking for, of course, arrests of all Putin and his cronies, every single person in any way connected to invasion to Ukraine, and uh, also personal sanctions in terms of cancellation of visas. It's, it's amazing, but uh, Russian elites are still allowed to hold US visas, uh, Schengen visas, uh, United Kingdom visas. Their children are still studying in the UK. Their children should be kicked out of the United Kingdom and go back to Mother Russia and talk to their parents about, you know, how how their parents' decision to, to invade Ukraine or to support the invasion into Ukraine has actually uh, led to some damage done to their own children. They should feel this in their own life. And then probably they should start reconsidering that. So, so I think those personal sanctions would uh, would do uh, would do good in those sense because right now uh, the Russian elite is not feeling the results of those sanctions on the in, you know in their own life. Of course, the, the Russians, the general population does feel that they cannot use the banks. Uh, they're, they're like majority of the shops that they uh, that they go to are closing down. But uh, the Russian people are not making the choices. The Russian elites are. They're, this is a dictatorship state, like the, the voice of the people doesn't matter there. So we need the Russian elites to feel the results of the sanctions and to feel the consequences of the sanctions in their direct lives. So if you close down some shops and, and you know, uh, Russians cannot go shopping in Moscow, if they still can hold uh, Schengen visas, they will go shopping to Italy. They'll be fine with that. So that is something that we should also reconsider. Um, I appreciate you laying all of that out there. I was reading this headline too. Uh, uh, this is from CNN. The Pentagon says Polish proposal to transfer jets to U.S. to give to Ukraine isn't tenable. So there's some logistical issues and and, and such. I mean, it, I know there's there's so many different dynamics to all of this, but I mean, and and, and we've talked to other Ukrainian uh, leaders who have said, you know, we will do the fighting. Just you know, give us whatever you can. I mean, give us whatever yeah. tools. And I imagine you, well, you've been saying the same thing yourself. Yeah, exactly. So it seems like that, that uh, Polish, uh, this is slightly strange. Uh, so, so they are trying uh, to help Ukraine, but in a way is uh, to pretend that they're not helping, which again, is, is just a pretense. It's like a fig leaf that you're trying to cover what is happening here. So, so as long as everyone just knows what is happening, like the technicalities don't matter. Uh, like, uh, so what the Polish are saying now is that we shall transfer the, the MiGs, MiG jets uh, to the US uh, NATO base in Germany, and from there they will be transferred to Ukraine. So no one wants to be the entity that is actually transferring the jets to Ukraine directly because everyone believes that that specific entity or that, that state will be actually directly involved right. in, uh, in, in, in war. In, but again, in the crosshairs, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But let's be clear. It, no matter which uh, NATO state is doing the transfer, that and, and if uh, the Russians decide to attack that state, that is an attack on all the NATO states. So it doesn't matter whether that will would be Estonia or Poland or whatever. And if uh, uh, after doing that, Russia would attack any single of those states, that will be considered an attack of the whole bloc. Article so five, yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't really matter. And I really wish they, they deal with this sooner rather than later because every day of delay, uh, statistically, and that's, a, that's a very bad word, but statistically means five more deaths of Ukrainian children. And that is uh, the math that they have to come up with. They have to admit that this is the math. So, so stop dealing with those technicalities. Just help us protect our skies because they're doing unthinkable, like bombing the, uh, again, just now while we are talking, 
I read that they bombed the, the children's hospital in Mariupol. I don't know mm. how, whether they were victims or whether they managed to run to the basement, but I'm seeing the, the video of, of a hospital completely destroyed. That is what they do, and that is the price. And that is something that we really should try to stop. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, there's there's always talk of, of ceasefire agreements. I mean, I know, you know, the, this, the talk is amongst intelligence officials, certainly in the, in the United States, and I imagine there too in Ukraine, is that Putin has changed, that there's been a psychological change uh, that's led up to a lot of this. So when you hear these discussions of ceasefires, I mean, is it hard? To, it, it's got to be hard to be confident that enough time can pass in a, in a ceasefire to to certainly get folks out of harm's way, um, you know, as as the uh, refugee situation unfolds, too. I mean, there's there's what, two million people I read that have fled Ukraine at this point. So, I mean, is it kind of an obvious question, but is it hard to have faith in any discussion of ceasefires, given the, the many dynamics you're dealing with? So it's like that. Again, the whole world needs to accept that whenever Putin is opening up his mouth, he's about to tell a lie. He is a pathological liar. He's unable to tell the truth. He's unable to keep his word. Uh, he's always lying, constantly lying. And uh, thus trusting him is, is just uh, you know doing damage to oneself. No one should really trust him. And I don't think many people trust him even in Russia right now. Uh, and uh, like he was saying that he will not attack Ukraine a week before he invaded us, just a week. And then he invaded and, and he pretends like nothing did happen before. Like he didn't say that he won't invade before. So uh, we can't trust him, of course. And in, in terms of those, uh, those um, humanitarian corridors and letting people uh, escape from, uh, from the cities uh, with the heavy fightings or cities under siege, uh, the, the dynamics has been different. So uh, they, uh, well, the first attempts of ceasefire and, and those humanitarian corridors established were just terrible because uh, they promised a humanitarian corridor in Mariupol which is southeast Ukraine, a port city, which is under, under this heaviest siege ever. And uh, they set the landmines in the place where they said people should gather in order to be evacuated. And those are women, uh, children, uh, disabled people, elderly people. They set up landmines to blow up small children. They knew what they were doing perfectly well, and that is what they did. And uh, then, uh, luckily, just by sheer luck, from what I know from the military, they they, they did see some some you know uh, some activity over there, and they figured out what they are doing, and they told the people not to go where where the Russians told them to go to be evacuated. Uh, then uh, the in the city of Irpin which is a city close to Kyiv, like really close. It's like uh, 20 kilometers uh, west. It's like literally 30 minutes drive from my home. So that is really, really close to home, frankly speaking. Uh, and this is a city of 100,000 people. And they have been basically uh, keeping people hostages there. People were staying in, in bunkers, in, in, uh, in everything, for, uh, in, in bomb shelters for a week. And they were trying to get out. The Russians promised that people will be uh, allowed to leave uh, the city. Um, and also the city of Irpin is a very young city in terms of there are very many young couples with small children living there because it's like suburbs of Kiev. So people who cannot afford housing in the city, they would buy apartments there and work in the city. So, so there are many, many children there, like per, per, per square kilometer or meter. And then uh, they opened fire and started throwing bombs into people evacuating from the city of Irpin. And I read a statement from one of uh, one man who said that we were running for our life, me, my wife, and my two children. And then I saw a bomb 
going in our direction. And then I saw two of my kids up in the air. So high, it seemed like this high as oh, the church. And gosh. now they are both dead. And, uh, and his wife was taken to the hospital and she died a few hours later. So, so this man had a life. He had a house. He had a family, two children uh, just two weeks ago. And now he has nothing. His apartment is ruined. His family is dead. And, and, and this is like the kind of people we're dealing with. It seems that they are unable to fight the army on the ground. So they're just turning to cruelty against the civilian population. And we know from some of the soldiers who, who the Russian army captured, Ukrainian army captured, the Russian soldiers, they said that, yes, they were given direct orders to open fire on civilians, on uh, children, elderly, whoever else, you know. This is the kind of monsters that we're dealing with here. And this is the kind of monsters we want the world to, to help us uh, save the world, not just us. Now, so, so humanitarian corridors, there have been some success, like they allowed to evacuate uh, people in Suma, which is north east Ukraine, uh, with heavy street fightings. Uh, it seems like the evacuation from Irpin and Bucha, the cities around Kyiv, is working. So it seems like many people did get evacuated from there. That's good. Yeah. But, uh, but Mariupol is under siege. They're not letting anyone out of there. And that is the city where uh, we had, uh, uh, again, girl died because of dehydration, because uh, they're just, uh, that is a humanitarian catastrophe. And I think they're using Mariupol now as an example of what they can do to other cities. Uh, and that is why uh, they're not letting anyone out there, no one at all. So that really depends. Like the situation is different in different cities. So. But no, trust in Russians is just not something anyone in the world should do. I am um, just, it's, it's, it's also harrowing and just and devastating. Um, last question I had, because I know you, you probably have to you do, there's so much going on on your end of things. Um, how, are you, how are you able to keep it together psychologically? I was, I was talking with um, a member of the military uh, who was, you know, signed up for the first time, 57 years old, to defend his country, you, uh, of course, Ukraine. And I asked him the same thing. It's like, you know, and how do you how do you keep it all together mentally and emotionally with so much going on, so much you just described, not knowing what's going to come from the sky? You know, you hate to say it that way, but that's kind of what's happening. I mean, how do you do this? Um, so I always remember. Um... Like my boyfriend told me a long time ago, because he, he served in the military before, and uh, I was uh, we were talking a lot about that. And he said that, well, during the wartime, just like in any other time, but particularly in wartime, you just need to know what your part of the job is. And you should know that uh, you need to be doing your job very well and expect that the others will be doing their part of the job very well. And then if we all are doing our job very well, we have a winning chance. So that is what I'm trying to concentrate on, is just as long as my job right now is talking to the world and explaining to the world what is happening here in Ukraine, I should just concentrate on that. It is sometimes extremely difficult. It's extremely, uh, when I saw the big, uh, there was one moment when I was about to fall apart. That was when uh, I saw how Russians were bombing my native city of Kharkiv. And uh, they just set up bombs from air, uh, like like into the central square. One bomb fell like three minutes walk from where I went to school. And, and my brother was actually next to me in that um, day. And he saw that uh, video and he, and he's like a grown up man, he's 34. So slightly younger than myself, but but still like an you know, grown up man. And he started crying. 
And I felt like I will cry now too, because it's just, it, it's our native city, even though we didn't live there very long time, but still we, we grew up there. But I knew that if I start crying, I wouldn't be able to do the interviews and to talk to people and so on and so forth. So I was thinking like, okay, I will be done with the interviews. I will be done with the talk. I will be done with checking my email and then I will probably cry. But then I was done with all of that. I think one in the morning and I knew that I will just go back to sleep and I will have to wake up at six again and, and continue doing my job. I think this is the way of surviving right now is like you, you know what your job is. You know that by doing this, you are contributing to the general you know, victory or, you know, and 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 uh, you just need to get your you know yourself together stay put and uh, continue doing your job that is how i try to deal with it nsf's a member of uh ukrainian parliament thank you is there anything else you'd like to add at all i think um one thing is that the whole world needs to understand is that putin is evil he's a monster and he's not fighting against ukraine He's fighting against uh, the ideas of democracy, respect for human rights, uh, basic human decency. And the very fact that th this fight is taking place in Ukraine right now doesn't make it a Ukraine-Russia war. It is Russia against the whole civilized world war. And that is why we are asking for the world to get engaged because like pretending that uh, we can just let another dictator uh, destroy another Eastern European state and that will not go any further, I think we must have learned that lesson from history. That's not going to work. Uh, this is a terrible, terrible monster that needs to be stopped. And it's not his war against Ukraine. It's his war against the whole world. NSF's a member of parliament in Ukraine. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, please, okay. uh, continued wishes for your safety and uh, continued prayers to you and, and all of your loved ones out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.